we are on. The meeting is now streaming on YouTube. Fantastic. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. If you're with us right now, you should see a blank screen, which is pretty boring. So let's run the tape. Fantastic. Well, I'm quite psyched that I actually managed to get that running on a live stream. So it's all just part of this improvement process. We're trying to get better and better as we go. Uh, so good to have Chris with me. And uh, I've also got this thing running so that you can throw some comments on if you happen to be around. The only, time, the only people I figured that might actually see this um, are those people that uh, perhaps got a notification when we posted this live. But other than that, I'm just basically pretending that we're not live streaming. So, you know, feel feel free to butt in on us, though, and uh, we'll try and answer any questions or, or you know, um, uh, feel free to say uh, anything you want. Uh, you won't interrupt us. But, um, yeah, I'm just kind of recording this, as I said in my previous um, episode, just trying to figure out a way to make the editing a little bit less, get it straight on, and uh, that way we can just talk more theology and worry about less stupid stuff that we never have to worry about. You know, nice. I went to seminary, not video training school, you know, <laughs> and uh, when I, when I planted a church, I realized that uh, actually you, they, they might've been wise in adding sort of like a, I don't know, a sound engineering component to, to church planter school, because right. it seems like trying to get things up and running these days, it, it just requires this whole other thing of knowledge. Um, but I'm not interested. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that we actually got as far as, the, uh, as we got. Thank God for people in the church that are actually gifted to do this stuff. But, um, uh, you know, you just try and make do. You try and get your websites up. You try and do these things. We just want to talk theology. That's all we want to do. So we're live. We're running. Um, and I got Chris. You guys know who Chris is. How's, how are things going in the States there, Chris? Yeah, they're going pretty well. Um, it's not quite as cold as it has been in the last few days. So, yeah, man. And, and how's the coronavirus craziness that, going on um, on that side? Um, it's coming uh, to California. I hear bad things about the Los Angeles area. I'm about um, eight to ten hours north of Los Angeles, but um, things look really bad in New York right now. Right. Yeah, that's where it's all happening. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's keep us informed as we go. But I mean, that's good news. So you're kind of out of the way a little bit, though, right? Is that is that the whole thing? I'm pretty rural, and so I hope that that will help help provide some insulation. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, all right. Well, hey, what what I um uh, suggested that we do um shut you a text a little bit earlier. Uh, so we haven't like no major prep for this as normal. That's how we roll. <laughs> Just want to keep it light. Want to keep it fluffy. Want to keep it deep. Want to keep it conversational. Um, though, and not turn it into this major prep thing. So uh, I just, uh, no, this is crazy. I should actually have the guy's name. Uh, was it uh, Garrick or Darrett or someone? Uh, I just recently read uh, a critique of Klein. Uh, I think it was a Baptist dude um, who basically just a quite a scathing review of his uh, use of ancient Near Eastern um, uh, treaties to sort of uh, as a hermeneutic to, to really especially I suppose when it came down to his reinterpretation of the covenant signs and this is what uh, this book is all about and so I mean you know you read through the book or you read through the the, the critique um, I'll try and find it and put it on the show notes I'll make that exception because I really should know the guy's name I think it's Darrett um, but yeah just read through a whole bunch of stuff recently and I forget the guys if they're not completely important um, and anyway so one, one thing he did make me do though <clears throat> was go back and uh, reread by oath consigned and um, as I was rereading it I was just thinking man this book is dynamite it is really truly amazing and it sucks that we don't have it properly published because I've got a scanned copy um, and uh, I met do you have like the original book format or I have a, a hardcover for, um, copy from like 68, I think. Oh, man, beautiful. So you probably, probably struggle to get some of those at this yeah. point. But um, you could sell it on, on like Amazon for 
$2,000 or something. That's right. <laughs> so if you ever, you probably would be able to sell it too with your, with your Kleinian crew all around you. You know, we're all, we're all keeping watch for those kinds of sales. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so I, what, what, what scan copy have I got? Where did I pick this thing up? I hope it's not illegal. I think I might've got it from no. the Meredith Klein page. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we probably, you know, shouldn't, uh, advertise it too much, but yeah, it's, it's just, uh, somebody generously letting you take a look at the copy they have. Right. Very cryptic. Uh-huh. <laughs> you should have done your Yoda voice for that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only um, Meredith could do it that well. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, anyway, so, so where do people get hold of this book if they want to read it though? That's crazy. Mm. Well, you could email uh, glorycloudpodcast at gmail.com and we could provide you with a, an electronic copy. All right. Uh, cool. I think, like, you know what? Um, yeah. You actually can purchase the Logos version. Oh, that's true. So if you have the Logos program. No, I don't think it is on Logos though. I'm looking at it right oh, now. Oh, you are? Okay, great. So it was in that package, that client package. That means I've got it as well. That means yeah. I don't have to use the stupid scanned one. Ah, <laughs> brilliant. Excellent. Okay, there we go. That's some groundwork. So just buy the Logos package. I mean, you should do that anyway. What are you, what are you wasting time here for? Go and buy, <laughs> go and buy the Logos client package. I mean, they got all of Klein's works. Most, it is all of them, right? Except for maybe some of the articles, um, you know, just a few little odds and ends probably that are not in there. But the great majority of his work is, yeah. is definitely uh, in that Lagos package. It's amazing that that happened. This client's quite an obscure guy otherwise. And uh, Lagos usually drags their heels on that sort of thing. And uh, somehow we just have it. Do you know the inside scoop on that? I don't, but thank you to whoever made that happen. Man, <laughs> truly, what a blessing. Because I mean, I'm searching Klein all day long on that, on that Lagos package. I mean, whenever there's anything, it just, you can make a little Klein collection in Lagos and then you can search the whole Klein collection. Um, it's just uh, fantastic. And then you can actually turn, it's got the cited by tool, which I use for all my sermon prep, where whenever I'm dealing with the text, it'll actually turn all of Klein's stuff into a commentary on that text. So in other words, if you're, if you're, you know, let's say you're looking at a random passage, Klein might not have referenced it even once that way, nothing will come up. But if you're hitting something like Genesis 3.15 or whatever, I mean, you're going to see every time he's referenced that pop up and it almost ends up functioning like a commentary as you're going through and sermon prepping. So uh, I would highly recommend wow. if you are interested uh, in, in looking at, at uh, Klein to go ahead and get that package. It's reasonably priced as well, which is another unusual thing in Lagos. So I don't know. We just hit the jackpot on that one. That's fantastic. Um, but Bioconsigned is out of publication and um, uh, it's, 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 it's just an amazing, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, hearing you and Lee talk about it uh, back in the day, I think that was because he was just not happy with some of the stuff in there, a little, a few of the, the things that he had uh, had tweaked along the way. He had reformulated a few thoughts, and they were important <clears throat> enough to him that he was willing to just not republish the book over those. One of those ideas was uh, Grace Before the Fall, and the other one was... Uh, sort of the covenant structure, I think he was um, not taking the covenant of redemption into account at this right. point in Bioth right. Consigned, and that played a major role as he developed his thinking. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and so you could understand why he would want to perhaps keep that on, you know, on the fade out or whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a short book especially the covenant section. And that's one of the things that I preach just rereading it. Now I was struck at how quickly I got through it all. Um, I, I think it's like a day and a half and I read the whole book. Um, but you know, just that covenant section in the beginning, just a beautiful summary. Now I realized that a lot of people uh, did use that for a long time as a summary of his covenant theology. And, um, and as a result of those things, you, have just said, and maybe even just as a result of those added insights that you find the deeper, richer, fuller picture, it might not be the best summary now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to see that, but it is just a, a great little, um, I thought what we could quickly do is just kind of move through the table of contents and just give a quick summary of the book itself. Um, and just to give people a bit of a, an inkling into what, what is there and, um, and whether it be worth their time to look at. Um, and it's especially interesting. I mean, as a Baptist looking at this, this is where he makes his big argument for, um, for 
uh, well, his unique view of why it is that you should baptize infants. Um, and, you know, be that as it may, there are a couple of interesting back and forth, uh, back, you know, just to and fro's on that in terms of the Presbyterian world. But as a Baptist, I found it just completely riveting. I, you know, I love, it's like a great argument for dunking, number one. Uh, number two, it's just uh, really, you know, incredibly insightful in terms of the thing you kind of major in on as a Baptist anyway, in terms of that, that judgment, redemptive judgment motif. So it's not like disagreeable at every turn to a Baptist is what I'm saying. Go ahead and read it. If you're a Baptist, obviously you're going to disagree at certain points, but then you can have that debate where you need to, uh, or in your mind at least. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just talking to myself. Maybe I'm the only Kleinian Baptist in the world. Who knows? <laughs> if, if anyone else not, is Mike. out there, let me know. Let's start a Kleinian Baptist Society. Chris is not in it. He's in the, he's in the <laughs> Kleinian Lutheran Anglican Society. It's just uh, even stranger in some ways. <laughs> but anyways, all right, let, let's get to this thing. Um, <laughs> Oath and covenant, right? And this, is a, this was like the paradigm shift for me. I remember this is, um, you got to know the Oath and Covenant thing because he's basically saying, uh, he's showing the, the correspondences between making an oath and making a covenant and then basically giving you the paradigm to unlock all of the, the Bible in terms of how it is that you tell if a covenant is a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. One of the most clear hermeneutical methods I've, I've yet come across. And uh, I don't know, you want to spend a second taking us through what that would be, Chris? Yeah, briefly, um, whoever swears the oath uh, really does determine whether it's a, a law covenant or a gospel covenant. And so, if a human being has to swear the oath to obey God upon pain of um, death or e eternal death, then it's a, a law covenant. But if God is swearing the oath uh, and it's unilateral and it's, you know, no matter what, I will keep this promise that I'm making, then it's a, a gospel covenant. And totally. it's really quite that simple. It's, it's beautifully simple, you know, and, you know, for all the complexity that Klein is usually known for, it's not often that you come across a paradigm that just works so beautifully clearly. I mean, you could be number two, day number two in Christianity, and, you know, you've got yourself a great paradigm to read the Bible. Um, this is how you know if this is a covenant of works or covenant of grace. I remember struggling with that, you know, the unilateral, bilateral angle and then you're like well is it conditional is it unconditional is faith a condition is this and you just end up in a mess whereas you know ultimately if you know hey the earth is the thing that's going to help you out if man took it it's covenant of works you basically are working with that paradigm and if it's uh, god taking the earth then you basically are looking at a unilateral gracious covenant uh, i mean wow that just untangles things uh, so beautifully so that's in the opening chapter and by the way i saw Ari log on Man, loving this coronavirus, Ari. Uh, you wouldn't normally be on at this time, brother. So <laughs> it's good. It's, you know, these are the benefits, right? Uh, glad you could join us, dude. Um, all right. So, you know, we've got this Oath and Covenant opening chapter, major, major important. Even if you just read that and learn how to re read your Bible, that's fine. Uh, but then let's say you venture on to chapter number two, which is the Law Covenant. And this is also uh, very, very helpful, although potentially confusing, I think, as you move forward. Um, in in Klein's um, work, because he, I mean, this this law principle is definitely something that stays with him the whole way through. It's unchanging, and yet he words it differently and articulates it slightly differently, and I think I think moves toward a more helpful articulation of it. Because this is like quite cryptic when you when you first read it, you have to really untangle what he's saying, and it could be construed in a in a, in a, a really um, uh, just an unhelpful, maybe even incorrect way. But he's basically saying um, you've got this covenant of works, covenant of grace, pre-redemptive covenant, um, and then the way that that works out after the fall and uh, the priority of the law. Uh, you want to give us a quick rundown as to what he means there, Chris? Uh, what, why is the law a priority for him in, in right through? Well, it's... Um in, in this book, it's a, it, the law has a priority in two ways, I guess, um, temporally, in that it was the, the first kind of covenant that we encounter in the um, creation covenant. Yeah. Um, and so that's significant that history starts with a law covenant. But mm. then it's also, in this book, um, it, it has a priority in, in the sense that 
the way he formulates it in this book is that every single covenant has law sort of at its core. Yeah. Um, and he did change the way that he talked about that later. But I think he, even at the end of his life, he would say that the principle of grace presupposes a violated law. And yeah. so you're yeah. still looking back to um, a relationship to a law covenant. Right. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Um, you are, there's no, there's no real meaning in the term grace unless you've got some sort of transgression of the law in view. And just in, in that statement, you've prioritized the law in, in a Kleinian mm-hmm. sense, I suppose. Um, I, I think it just as, as you were speaking, I remembered that um, this is kind of, a, he was still in the by the by uh, covenantal scheme, right? Rather than the tri covenantal scheme. So right. he had, it was maybe it's not the best way to put it, but mushed the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace together. Um, right. And so I think probably that would emphasize what, what we would, I mean, if we talk about the covenant of redemption right now, I mean, obviously it's a law covenant. It's something that Christ does for us and therefore earns for us. And so, you know, you can see if you just got those two categories to work with, you don't want to, you don't want to get rid of the law. You want to keep it there in the covenant of, of grace. Um, and, and I think that's what's putting a lot of pressure on his language. That's why, that's how I read it anyway. You know, at one point, I can't remember the wording, but he says something like this is a, um, uh, it's a, it's a law redempt, a law grace covenant or a law redemptive covenant or something like that. And you're like, wait a minute, isn't that exactly, you know, um, those are the antithetical principles that he's got there in one hyphenated word. And, <laughs> right. um, but what he means is that it's law run, it's driven by the law and therefore is grace to us, which he just expands more properly in, as he moves forward and uh, kingdom prologue and that sort of thing. Uh, that is correct, right? I haven't got that wrong. I'm not, I'm not, um, he didn't make a major change that I'm unaware of there. No, I think you summarized really well what he's saying there and as a result of the way he formulated that he ended up um coming up with a a critique that he wrote up of a.a hodge because hodge mashed the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace together and ran into some real problems as a result and so klein wrote up a critique of that fantastic yeah and that that'd be something for us to come back on uh that's a great little article too yeah exactly all right so that came out of his uh movement forward so it might be helpful for anyone listening in on this to go and read that and see how he progressed in his mindset there but um the priority of the law it's big and uh this is something that we have to obviously um keep intact he's at no point wanting to let go of this idea that uh, it's grace heaven is earned essentially and it's grace because someone has earned it for us. It's not, it's not that you ever turn into some sort of neo-nomianism or grace is infused into law or anything like that. And even though he wasn't quite as clear as he was later with some of those influences of Murray, uh, at the end of the day, it, you know, he held very clearly, I mean, especially because of the opening chapter was what it was. You've got an oath covenant, uh, the oath that's determining what kind of covenant it is ultimately, I think um, is, is basically what's steering things right the whole way through the book, even if he does move forward. Um, all right, so that is the chapter two. Chapter three um, is where we get the, um, the kind of into the reinterpretation of, of circumcision, I suppose, at some level, um, uh, where he speaks of the, um, the oath sign as something that is a malediction um, and a sign of consecration. Um, it's, it's calling the curse upon yourself, I suppose. Now, you got to help me out here because I don't want to misrepresent Klein um, in terms of anything he says by way of setup to uh, you know what he will later argue for in infant baptism, but uh, as I understand it, basically he's saying uh, rather than rather than process the or, or let's start this way, the reform community at large has been correct in essentially seeing circumcision as a sign uh, of the covenant of grace with Abraham, so they're, they're dead on there, and he's happy with that. The problem is that they've run into some problems in terms of, um, you know, almost, you know, we can see very clearly with with sacerdotalism that, you know, there is this sign that promises something 100%, you will get it. There's a kind of um, maybe a Lutheran version of it, but uh, in terms of in terms of uh, the Presbyterian dilemma, it's always been, or the Reformed dilemma, it's always been. Uh, what, what does this actually promise the child? You know, ultimately, what what, what is this? 
what is the positive blessing here that you're bestowing upon the child? We can't be like the Roman Catholics and say, you know, the water, or in this case, the circumcision is just saving you. Um, uh, we need something more nuanced and subtle. But, you know, so this is what I call the Presbyterian squirm. You know, it's just a little bit of a, it's a squirmy place and it's a back and forth. And I think Klein really comes along and helps out in that. And truly, if I was ever, ever going to go Presbyterian, um, you know, this is, this is the approach that I think most won me over because he just takes it right out of that category and he goes, no, no, don't think in terms of blessing. Think in terms of how it is that this sign consecrates the child uh, to, um, well, we'll get into the, the, the suzerain thing in a second, but, but to the Lord and, um, and, and think about how it calls a curse upon the uh, a judgment, eschatological curse, uh, so to speak, upon the child. And that way it applies across the board to every child. You know, you don't even have to worry about that. There's no squirming involved. It's, um, it's definitely a, a real thing. So he just sort of flips that whole paradigm on its head, uh, so to speak. Um, I don't think there's anything you want to add there, Chris. Well, I think he would say that um, the covenant sign, um, and then, I mean, in chapter three, we're talking about circumcision, but uh, the covenant sign carries within itself the potential for two different outcomes, either yes. blessing or curse. Okay, great. Um, and that we can't presume either one. Right. But in the case of circumcision, you know, you've got a blade and it's doing cutting. Yeah. yeah. Um, it could be cutting that child off from God, which would right. be curse. Right. Or it could be cutting sin out of that child's heart. And it's up to God, you know, which one that is. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. I didn't, the, the, the dual sort of aspect there is, is important, uh, blessing or curse. I suppose why I'm leaning towards the curse side is uh, because of his whole thing regarding redemptive judgment. And um, mm-hmm. he does talk about it in, in this book, but also Kingdom Prologue. It's a big theme. It expands. Uh, where if there is any blessing, it's only going to come through a judgment anyway. Right. And, uh, and so it's almost like what you're consecrating to uh, as, as, you know, as someone that is being consecrated. Uh, how many, I'm trying to make this apply for uh, Presbyterians and Baptists. <laughs> so, so hence my stuttering, you know, before I just turned it into a, 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 you know, the, the well-worn path there. Um, basically, you know, thinking about it from a Baptist perspective, let me just allow me that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's so awesome because basically you're saying, uh, as a believer, I now consecrate myself to the suzerain. Um, and that means that I'm, I'm, I'm consecrating myself, uh, I'm putting myself into his hands in terms of the judgment that is to come. And uh, declaring the need for the judgment and the rightness of the judge to judge me. And, and yet at the same time, I'm you know, especially as I'm going underneath that water, as I'm coming back up, uh, there is a there is an awareness that as I throw myself at the hands of the sovereign, he has provided a, a, a savior for me in which to be judged, who has experienced the full wrath of that judgment. So that through the judgment, I have died with Christ and so I'll be resurrected. Now, in terms of, you know, obviously I'm thinking in terms of the blessing side of it there through the redemptive judgment. But, what, you know, just not to quit, too quickly scoot over the genius of a Klein does here for the Presbyterian position is that it doesn't have to be for the, for the, for the blessing side of it. Um, because it could equally be true that you, um, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but as a vassal, uh, 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 as the household head or the one in authority, you're consecrating your, your child to the suzerain in light of that coming judgment. Um, and you're placing a sign that, that, essentially is speaking primarily about that judgment, not about the child's standing. So that's why it's so winsome for me because it takes it right out of that whole, um, that whole squeamy kind of, uh, you know, what are we doing with the kid here? You know, what, what exactly is the water doing? He's going, listen, it's, it's saying, uh, this is, this is, uh, you're taking the judgment seriously and you're consecrating this child to the judgment. And, uh, then within that realm, you, you're able to sort of um, give the child hope that as, as, you know, as every believer would, would hope for that as Christ comes along, uh, or at least not as Christ comes along, but as Christ uh, is the one that can, that can provide refuge in that judgment, you would hold on to the ark, so to speak. Um, so again, um, have we hit everything there? I think maybe I need, the only thing I want to add to that is that he's drawing a lot from um, the ancient Near Eastern treaties at that point, which I thought was very, very helpful. It's, um, 
it's also the point that he takes some critique here, but but I think the 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 basic idea, if you've already been won over on the way a client does things, it's not really a problem in that you're seeing the validity of of the ancient Near Eastern treaties. Um, to help out with an understanding of what was going on. And he's, and tell me if I'm getting this right now, Chris, because um, as I understand it, he's basically saying that when, you know, typically when a vassal would enter into a treaty with, the, with uh, some sort of suzerain or sovereign, um, there would be a maledictory oath sign. There would be a calling a curse upon oneself in order to consecrate yourself to that suzerain. So in other words, if I don't do this, let this happen to me, uh, which is, Sounds really negative, but the idea is I'm yours now, right? Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where he uses a, a concrete example of um, a vassal. I can't remember if Mati Ilu is the vassal yeah, or the right. suzerain. But anyway, yeah. um, there was always a bloody ritual that went along with this oath. Right. And he cites one in particular where a donkey's leg was cut off and shoved in the donkey's mouth. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's, that's pretty graphic. And, you know, the, yeah. the oath then is, may what has happened to this donkey happen to me right. if I'm not faithful to you. Um, so obviously you don't want that curse to come upon you. So you do want to, um, to keep the covenant. And if you keep the covenant, then you have um, blessings. So that would obviously be an example of a, a law covenant or a covenant of works. Yeah, but um, he's he's using the example of the um, um, the oath sign, and mm -hmm. that that donkey was really the the sign of yeah um, what would happen if the covenant was broken. Totally, and it makes sense because I mean you've got it. Just I mean we'll get to John the Baptist again. I think that's where it really rings true. But um, it's just this blood, this guts. <laughs> You know, it's a bloody right, uh, the mm -hmm. circumcision thing. And then obviously the way it carries through in terms of um, uh, Abraham and Isaac, uh, that's powerful in that he's essentially, uh, you know, uh, providing a fuller picture to what, to what circumcision stands for. We've got the knife. You're about to submit your child to the full weight of what that knife judgment in circumcision um, has stood for, all pointing forward to what Christ ultimately did receive uh, he received the knife judgment the curse the so it's, it's full of that connotation it doesn't take it's not a stretch to go okay well ancient near east and blah 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 and then you know look how it's all just daisies and sunshine in the bible it doesn't you know it's it, it, you got blood everywhere you got guts everywhere so it's an easy jump in that sense and um i think right. it, it provides a lot of context uh for a lot of the stuff that is otherwise odd in the bible that you read mm -hmm. about um where it seems almost aggressive. The sign is approached with this aggressive aspect, you know, uh, a bridegroom of blood uh, kind of, you know, uh, it's a judgment thing, you know, <laughs> which makes sense. Anyways, uh, more we could say about that. But then you get to um, the uh, John the Baptist episode and, and here's where, uh, have we skipped it? No, chapter four, that's good. So he goes straight into John the Baptist and here's where I think it really carries a lot of weight because you are, um, you know, John the Baptist, there he is, is kind of the last of the prophets and uh, doing what the prophets do, bringing the covenant lawsuit upon the people. Um, they, have, they have transgressed. They've got their whole history to look back on. They are unable to keep the law. Therefore, judgment must come. Uh, it's almost, you've got this eschatological ring to everything that John the Baptist is doing. You know, now the you know, the final judgment is coming. How will you save yourselves? You know? And I suppose one of the ways we've typically thought about what John was doing there was that he was just going, all right, come and get a Christian baptism in that you're going to get, you know, your sins cleansed. And all of a sudden they've just come up with this new way to kind of cleanse you of your sins. And Christians really latched hold of that. And it just feels like a bit of a jump from what's happening over there. Whereas Klein says, um, you know, what he's doing is he's enacting a judgment sign. Um, and, and he's saying, uh, you know, this water, like the ark, like the Red Sea, like the, the oath ordeal, uh, the, the uh, trial ordeal in the Levitical Code. I mean, it's all just, I'm going to smash you into this water. And this is like the judgment. And, and basically, the, there is one coming who's going to receive that judgment. And in him alone will you be safe. Um, now, obviously, there is a repentance element there, and uh, there is a turning to God element there, but it's almost anticipating something that can't really be explained unless the Messiah comes 
comes next, right? Uh, it doesn't right. make sense until ma- the Messiah enters the picture, which I really like about that explanation. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Klein made a big deal in class out of distinguishing John's baptism from Christian baptism, right? Um, primarily because of this judgment aspect. Yeah, totally. And even the way that when Jesus comes, um, you know, and John baptizes him, mm-hmm. whoa, all of a sudden it's like that whole thing just makes sense because, right. you know, the whole thing is looking forward to the one who would be judged. Now Jesus is the one baptized by John. I mean, I suppose we always get there eventually. Uh, you know, I found interpreters kind of move around with that text and like, okay, well, we basically you know, what Jesus is doing is is somehow relating to sinners who would need to be baptized for their sin and therefore showing, showing what he needs to do. But I think when you understand John's baptism to be this sign of judgment, um, you know, in line with the signs of judgment that have gone before uh, and Jesus gets baptized, it just all of a sudden, I mean, it feels just so much, it just feels like all the puzzle pieces connect at that point. And, um, and so Jesus is the one who would, take on that oath, that curse sanction, um, and, uh, or how does he, yeah, the, the malediction and, um, and he would, he would receive the full weight of its punishment. And this is how those who are baptized are going to be blessed, um, only through their participation in that judgment that, you know, they're, they're safely in the ark. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what else to say about that? Just want, wanting to not move too quickly over it. Um, the ultimatum messenger, symbolic water ordeal. Anything else you, you you can think of there, Chris? Well, I'm tempted to talk about the symbolic water ordeal, but I think the the really weighty part um, he saves for chapter five, right? In, in okay. terms of the analogies that he makes to a couple of the Old Testament episodes. Good. Yeah. Totally. All right. So then we get into Christian baptism. Um, it's it's again it's awesome to read i mean really the problem that baptists are going to have are kind of the administration part at the end but but five i mean i think i wouldn't imagine that anyone who's reading along as a baptist is going to disagree with anything uh in chapter five it's powerful you know it is really just entirely agreeable i feel to everything that we're doing anyway as baptists but it just adds that depth um I love the way, uh, I think it might've been right at the end of the book, but he's like, um, he's like, listen guys, let's, let's rethink the sprinkling thing. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, like ultimately the water is not important, but you know, and how we administer it, but you know, seriously, you've got this thing where you, where you dunk people into the water and it's like a, like a judgment. Uh, that's awesome. You know, so I love the little, <laughs> the slight appeal there. And um, again, something Baptists can, can appreciate at least. Um, and I know many Presbyterians too. Um, um, but I know he preferred, um, I, I think you, you mentioned the other day, he prefers, uh, his preferred choice was effusion. Pour, uh, I think he described it as pouring. Pouring, and, right. You know, he wanted enough volume in the pouring to actually have a sense of yeah. some danger there. Right. And, and, you know, that always, I mean, you've got a flood idea coming through, so that's right, definitely right. there. And um, I think that I've always been quite, quite uh, won over by that idea where, um, you know, Jesus speaks about the baptism um, that he will give in the Holy Spirit. And uh, then in, at Pentecost, you've got the outpouring of the Spirit, which right. is, I mean, if anyone gets to define it, I mean, that, that's awesome. So certainly I can see how pouring would work well there. Um, as another means of administration, but um, yeah, probably sprinkling, not so much. I don't know. <laughs> well, he would mock it by licking his thumb and, you know, <laughs> there's Presbyterian sprinkling, just, you know, moisten your fingertip and touch the forehead. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so anyways, um, we, I mean, that's not ultimately the point, I suppose, but it's just, it's one of those things where I think, um, I, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to remember, uh, as a stand here where I read this, it might've been in, in uh, Jonathan Klein's intro or his son's intro uh, in those, that list of essays in, in that recent book that came out. Um, but he says, you know, once, once Klein put out this book, it's almost like he, he thought everyone was just all of a sudden going to just get it, you know, and, and I can right. get it. It really is a masterful piece of scholarship, isn't it? It um, really is. There aren't many books that you read where you feel so, whoa, something is changing as you read it. There's something so powerful about the way he 
you know, even if it's, even if you ultimately disagree with it, I mean, you can't but respect what just happened in this little book. Uh, it's just, I don't know, in my experience is not often that you come across something so hard hitting, so thought provoking, so filled with content. Um, and again, like a hundred pages, it's amazing. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's just incredible. It's so deep. Um, anyway, so where were we? We are Christian baptism, oath sign of the new covenants, uh, baptismal as ordeal, new covenant judgment. Take us through what he means there. Well, this is, um, I, I think, some of that genius that you're talking about because he looks at what Paul does with um, Moses taking Israel through the Red Sea. Um, yep. And I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 10. And he looks at what Peter does with the flood episode in um, 1 Peter chapter 3. And he sees both of those were judgment events. Uh Um, God was judging people and depending on, um, those people's relationship to him, it was either penal judgment, punishment Uh judgment, or it was redemptive judgment. But either way, everyone in those stories was going through water judgment. Yeah. Um, and both Paul in, uh, first Corinthians 10 and Peter in first Peter three are connecting those water judgments to baptism specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And so Klein is saying we are also undergoing judgment when we are baptized. Mm. And so it's very much like circumcision in that, um, the result is either going to be our condemnation or our salvation. Right. Great. Um, and he, at that point as well, from what I remember going through is that he, again, what's, what's helpful. I mean, what's different, what's a, a reinterpretation there, I suppose, is that he's allowing for both the blessing and the curse in light of that judgment rubric. Um, either you're just judged penally, as you said, or you're, you're brought in through a redemptive judgment, but, uh, there's no reason not to apply the sign because you're, you're trying to, you know, is my kid going to be saved once I play the water or anything? He's just getting right out of that, that uh, bracket or right out of that way of thinking, which um, again is just uh, quite a, quite a challenge for Baptists. I mean, you have to, you have to really rethink about things at a whole new level at that point. And I suppose that that does take us into the last um, chapter where um, I've always felt this to be kind of a, a tag on uh, in, in that it's not essential to the argument, but he then completes the argument from his perspective by way of the household authority principle. Um, again, appealing from a, from the ancient Near Eastern treaties. So, you know, same, same hermeneutic that he's using there, same undergirding methodology. Um, but I don't know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just, I'm, I'm not seeing it as part of the argument that he's built up to this point, but more, rather a, a plug-in argument. Oops, hit that mic. Uh, my apologies if you just went deaf there, um, but a, a plug-in <laughs> argument um, that that works hand in hand with this one to show that it, you know, it, in his perspective, should be administered the way that the Reformed and Presbyterian, or really so much of the church, has administered um, baptism. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment, or do you think there's something more intricately connected? I think that's fair. Um, you can sort of feel the the gears shift as you get into chapter six, but like you say, it's the same hermeneutic that he's been using the whole time. Right. So he's going. All right. So now, if we've brought us to the uh, brought ourselves to this understanding at this point, in terms of how the ancient Near Eastern treaties have helped us to understand the redemptive aspect, uh, surely it makes sense um, to consider how they would have viewed who gets this oath sign, right? If we've, right. Used, if we've used that that way of thinking about it and it's uncovered so much, why stop there? And I totally get that. I feel the force of that. So he's going, all right, as you look at the ancient Near Eastern treaties, um, what you're seeing is uh, the, the vassal comes under the, the, the comes into consecrate or consecrates himself to the suzerain, but then it's his task to look at those under his domain and consecrate them as well. Um, it's not just him, it's everything that, that is in his domain as well. Uh, and, and again, we've remo- already moved the obstacle to doing this because it's just about being consecrated um, and about being brought seriously into uh, consecration in view of the ultimate uh, curse that would, that, would, that would take place if uh, this is not dealt with well. So you can imagine, and then he goes, right, well, that's what we've just seen in, in Abraham pretty much, right? That's um, right. That's everything that's just happened there. God said, right, here's the oath for you. 
um, this is your redemptive judgment because you believe and uh, it's going to be through this judgment. So you're circ circumcised, but then to your children as well and your household, etc. So he's, he's basically explained the rationale for that. And then, uh, you know, he said, all right, if that makes sense and that he's not doing anything different to what we'd see in, in, in many of the ancient Near Eastern treaties, um, the, the question then becomes, does that, does that move on in terms of uh, administration in the new covenant? And uh, leaving aside the well-worn paths here in terms of household uh, baptisms and whatnot, I mean, all of that would weigh in favor uh, of what he's saying because it seems, to, it seems to indicate that really nothing has changed. And why would it if you've taken out the need for the child to be saved already or have been strengthened or, you know, sort of pseudo-Roman Catholicized or whatever it is? Um, really, all, all that's happening is that the household, the head, is consecrating his family to the suzerain. Is there anything else that's happening that I'm leaving out? No, I think that's accurate. And I think... Um First Corinthians seven is probably one of the main texts that he appeals to because it's just one parent that Paul says. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, good. The the they are holy because. Uh, yeah. Good. Um, and again, a, a, another well worn uh, path in terms of the way that that uh, Peter Baptists usually argue for their position, but this adds a whole new spin on it. You know, mm -hmm. it adds a, a much a much uh, clearer way in which that text might have force because i mean if you're just using that to argue for a certain set of partners or consecrationists uh you know it, it's almost like well that doesn't really tickle where where you're itching otherwise but if if you've set it up that that's all it needs to do then all of a sudden it becomes a, a important text um just wanted to get some of your uh feedback on 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 the just the article that i had in mind this uh, critique of Klein. um he must have dealt with this at some point, I, I don't know of any um, comeback to, to, the, to the critique itself, um, but, but maybe you do. Um, he, if I remember correctly, what he said was, um, the problem with this kind of view, and this is all on my Two Kingdom radar right now, but he's basically saying, um, if you go ahead with, with that vassal authority principle, um, it's almost like you're giving a, a, a nod to Christendom at some level, because really who are the, the vassals, um, you know, the monarchs really would be the ultimate vassals and have countries under their, under their uh, uh, domain. And so when they become Christians, you know how Christendom, you, they used to kind of just get everyone slammed uh, or sprinkled at least. They just used to line them up right. and send them into battle. And, um, and so I suppose what was, what this guy was saying is, well, you know, if the monarch or the vassal ultimately there is just consecrating those under his domain, um, you know, are we not giving a, a real nod to Christendom? Did Klein have a comeback or did he have some thoughts on that that you're aware of? Uh, well, I'm trying to imagine how he would respond to that. And I think he would probably look at, for example, Abraham and say, wouldn't Abraham be um, an exception to that he was basically a nomad wandering from place to place so it wasn't like this authority principle that was inaugurated with him uh, created something like Christendom in the Old Testament and then we have a few hundred years of church history where um, the church was in serious danger of being wiped out by the Roman Empire and they're still baptizing people um, yeah uh, yeah right yeah, I suppose uh, his angle was more in terms of, um, well, as I read it anyway, maybe I read into this, but, but he was just sort of saying, well, you know, if it's almost like the one barrier that you've had with the Christendom approach to baptism mm -hmm. has been like, well, they don't really care about Christianity, you know, how can right. you baptize that whole like Viking tribe or whatever it is, uh, because they, they don't care, they're just doing it for obviously political reasons. And so it almost, you know, if, if it's true that, the, let's say the emperor or the king believed that's really all that was necessary. You know, you, you know what I mean? I see. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to uh, Constantine having created a, yeah, as probably a worse problem than the problem that he solved by, you know, saving yeah. the church's life. But and Klein would um, probably be sympathetic to, to us on that as well. Right. If I'm not mistaken. Exactly. So that's why it's kind of a bit of a, I thought it was an interesting point. You know, Klein must've thought that one through at some level. But uh, there's nothing that necessitates um, that Christendom be something other than it, it turned out in God's providence, it was something in history. Right. But I don't, I mean, 
if if the church had just remained um, its own thing and the mm-hmm. state had remained a um, primarily persecuting power, right. I don't see why um, things wouldn't have. I don't see why Klein couldn't have still written this book if that's the way history unfolded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah. No. Totally. I mean, it's obviously oversimplifying it to to say that um, Christendom would be born out of this, but it just it did get me on the back foot into thinking. Um, well, yeah. Exactly what you just said. I mean, if it had gone well with those other elements, what would this have done? It's kind of an interesting thought. We could be, uh, come back on that on some other time. But it's, um, it, it's one of the things that I know this guy lodged as a, a critique. And then, um, and then the other thing, I think probably more immediate was, uh, and this maybe, again, is a little bit closer to the well-worn path, um, but the household principle in terms of, um, in terms of a Roman understanding uh, you know, obviously included servants very much in the way that um, the the Abrahamic or, or at least uh, the Jewish understanding w- would have done back in the day. Mm. Uh, perhaps even more so, he argues. You know, you've got the Roman villa; it's it's quite it's it's a large sort of grouping, and you'd have the the guy who's in charge of this Roman villa. And so, if if it if it is the case that you know um, he believed, and then everyone in his household gets baptized. You've got quite a big group there, which it seems that you know Klein doesn't want to say ultimately. Um, and so, yeah, you know, again, we can we can make this whole separate episode if you want to. But I don't know if you had any kickback thoughts on that, just while it's all fresh in my mind. It seems like I encountered something like this um, while I was in seminary, and it seems to me, uh, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. But that, I mean. Worst case scenario, this is a, a criticism of Presbyterians in, in terms of the consistency of their practice, but it doesn't necessarily invalidate what Klein is saying. Maybe you just need to say, right. hey, Klein, you need to include servants in this. <laughs> wow. I like it. I like it. Hey, Kendall, I see you, brother. Kendall Oliver's online. Um, very cool. I know he's been threatening to, to join us. He joins you guys all the time. So, hey, finally, I don't feel so, so bad about uh, Kendall just kind of flipping and flopping between glory cloud and, and two age sojourn. I mean, dude, pick some, pick some guns and stick with them, bro. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, yes, no, I think that's a, uh, that, that probably is something, uh, it's a difficult question. I think it's very involved. There's a lot to look at. It's obviously not, um, something we can just solve right here and right now, but, um, it is interesting to me. I think that would be, you know, it feel I feel a little bit like it doesn't really matter to me being Baptist, and I've kind of I've probably uh, there are other areas I would take exception to and and want to work on rather than this one. So it's not something that I'd really worried about. But you know, if I had gone a little further on the argument, and I think that I had bought in and I was about to baptize my kids and that sort of thing, because I was going to, as the head of the house, consecrate my kids to the sovereign lord um, or the suzerain, um, and I had, you know, I would feel the weight of not including my servants. Like that would, you know, based on this argument, I would, I think mm-hmm. I'd probably need a reason not to. That certainly was the case with Abraham. That certainly was um, still the case in, in, in uh, New Testament households. So I would, I would need a reason. I just can't think of what that reason would be to stop me. So as you say, it might be an inconsistency issue um, that along with the reinterpretation of these signs, Klein is bringing to the table. Maybe it's fair to say it that way. He's challenging, you know, a reinterpretation and its implications. Um, uh, I I think my 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 um, background or my instinct is just to want to stay away from. I've always I've always felt like it's a bit laughable that you know they were just baptizing everyone. I think of the I often use this in sermon illustrations. For example, you know, you send off your missionary. You uh, get to an unreached people group. Um, you're like, hey, this is the gospel. They're like, awesome. Uh, you know, a few people get eaten along the way, but eventually someone believes. And, um, and then everyone is a Christian, and all of a sudden they're wearing the Puritan outfit. <laughs> and, you know, they're waving the British flag. And, you know, church services is looking very, very British. <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever the, the colony uh, is involved there. Um, and... And then everyone is just getting baptized, you know, just, just there. Now you're all Christians. And so for me, that is all like, that's very Christendom. You know, that's something I think we want to, as a gathered church guy, as a, um, someone who, who buys into the idea of no, there's something different 
between just being born and being a Christian. Uh, I suppose, you know, some part of me wants to kick back at that, but, but it's just an interesting question. I've never really heard it before. And obviously just working on, on uh, my dissertation at this point, I think it probably is something that will, uh, I'll, I'll look into a bit more as I go. And so I'll keep you informed and keep you, uh, show you where yeah. I'm going there. But, but, um, and I'll also get back to everyone about who this guy is, this mystery critique guy. <laughs> you, do, you, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't, but now maybe I'm what I should do is just quickly have a look, see if I can do it online live. All the pressure on me. Oh my goodness, I'm about to crush. Um, let's see. Let's see. Can it be done? No, I don't think so. I'm just going to make my computer fall apart. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to bail out. Don't I'm do it, Mike. Out. Don't do I'll it. Put it on the show notes. Anyway, so there we go. Uh, we're, we're getting on to like 55 minutes there. So that is by Earth Consigned. Anything else we want to? Don't want to fade out on a negative note on the, on no, the whole. Um, um, yeah. I will, if you'll allow me, yes. maybe take a step beyond Klein here. I'm not sure. I am not sure that he would be comfortable with this, but it does seem to me mm-hmm. that an implication of what he's saying in this book is that there is some sort of objectivity to the covenant signs so right. that everyone who is baptized really does come in contact with the risen and living Christ you're either encountering him as judge or as savior. And in that, see, I really love that. I think that's great. And and, uh, I want to leave it at that, but here's my one little lingering question. What, and maybe you can help me with this. What is different from that then and everyone else? Anyway, just being in Adam or being in Christ. You know, it's, Mm. it's kind of one of those truths that are just true. Well, I was thinking about this as you were talking about, um, you know, Puritans uh, doing missions. Yes. And I would think that you would want to explain to um, husbands and wives if, if they're going to be responsible for baptizing the rest of the yeah. people in their household, saying, you need to understand what's involved in um, being in covenant with God. Right. Right. What the responsibility means. And maybe you don't want that. If you don't want that responsibility, don't get baptized. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you're limiting it by way of the parents' seriousness to let their children know of that coming judgment right. uh, and, um, and even the gospel that will save them, of course. Um, let them know of their consecration to the suzerain, in other words, which is not going to be the case for someone um, who has not been baptized. They don't have their parents, those parents that are, are, are committing at that level. Yeah. It, you know, and if uh, you um, Smiths are thinking about being baptized because the Joneses are being baptized, that's not a good enough reason. Right. Right. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you think it's fair to, to say that, um, and I, I think I feel like I might be stepping slightly out of, um, of line with what Klein is saying here, but maybe I'm not. Um, if uh, let's, you know, let's say that, uh, at, you know, when this comes down to being actually practiced um, and you're baptizing your children, you're, you're, you're letting them know exactly what you just said there of the objectivity of, of, of this thing that they, they are in relationship with God. And, and then let's say this was a really clever little kid. And they said, but what about everyone who's, you know, born under the covenant of works? Aren't they all in relationship with God? Um, and, and you say, yes, that's true, son. But the difference is that we're, as a family, taking, we believe that relationship and we take, we're taking it seriously. And that's why you were baptized. I mean, do you think that's, that's, that's a good way to distinguish it? Or is this something I don't yeah. want to? Okay, good. And? And those other people are automatically, at least at this point, condemned because they don't believe. Right. God right. wants to save you. <laughs> right. So as a, as a vassal, um, you know, family head guy, mm-hmm. without going patriarchal, just going, you know, vassal. <laughs> um, I'm basically saying, right, it's my job to look at, at this family unit and go, I'm going to take this thing that's true of everyone anyway in terms of the covenant of works and they're being in a relationship of judgment with God. And I'm just going to make sure I'm, t- I'm taking it. This family understands that seriously and, be- and believes it. Um, right. So it's not necessarily that the, I suppose that's where I get tripped up with the language. It's not that the objectivity itself is different, but, but because they were already objectively under a covenant that would ensure their judgment uh, or they would be in Christ, 
you know, but, but what's different is maybe the subject of awareness of that object of reality. Is that, is that, is that right? Or am I moving? Am I pushing it? Yeah. I mean, it's, we see it also in the Lord's supper and we, yeah. you know, we don't really seem to um, shy, shy away from it there. Obviously people who um, reject the offer of the gospel are condemned mm-hmm. because they don't believe. But someone who comes and takes the bread and the wine with an unbelieving heart eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great parallel. So what are we saying with that? I and mean, we're saying that they are, if they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves, it's not the judgment of a new covenant, right? You, you agree, you, it's the judgment yeah. of an Adamic covenant. Right, right. Right. So it's a similar, very similar dynamic there. It's a great parallel. Um, and... I suppose what, we're, what that means then is that it is true uh, that, that there's an increased accountability. Is that the way to put it maybe? You know, so basically when I baptize my kids, right, I'm saying, right, now that you're consecrated to this final eschatological judgment through the curse sign, uh, you are now set at an increased level of accountability to that reality. Is that, would, you, would that sound about right? Or I'm just trying to find a way to distinguish it, if you know what I'm saying, um, from if I had not consecrated them. Well, like as a Baptist, because I come along and obviously I've consecrated my family to that reality. I'm teaching them of those things. I haven't applied that sign. But, um, you know, I could appreciate, I'm just trying to find where the, where the little mechanism difference would be because I'm going, well, as soon as, as, soon as they, they believe, I would say, right, now you need to call this oath sign down upon yourself so that you know that you're going to get carried through the judgment um, in Christ alone. Um, because, you know, before that it was true anyway. Uh, there's no real need to apply a sign that, uh, for something that was true anyway. That's where I get stuck, I suppose. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, at least one of the difference between the two signs is baptism is about um, uh, induction, uh, membership, Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. part of what we're saying in baptism is you belong to Christ. Right. To the person who is baptized. Um, and, you know, uh, as someone who has baptized his children, I'm saying, I am praying that my children don't grow up to say, I don't want to belong to Christ. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I think everybody has the problem of um, hypocrites whose, I mean, hearts we can't read who come to the Lord's table all the time, mm-hmm. but at some point say, um, you know, I, I never believed all this stuff anyway. So the Lord's table and thing. And they've been taking the Lord's. Yeah. So just to follow through what I was saying there, in that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give the Lord's, I imagine it would be the same for you. You wouldn't grant access to the Lord's without a, some sort of credible profession at some level, which is what makes the whole thing, you know, gives it a, a meaningful rubric in my mind in that if they are then, hypocritically, you know, obviously they are bringing the judgment down in an increased way. Is there some other angle that you have on that thought that I'm not aware of? Oh, um, not that I can think of on the spur of the moment here. Right. Totally. Okay. Well, interesting. I mean, I think what I'm taking away from this and again, nothing real new year, but um, is that it's just functionally, it gets very, very close at that, at that level that, you know, again, I feel like as a, as a Baptist, I can appreciate deeply everything that's being said. And even if I don't apply the covenant sign to my kids, what I would take away from that last chapter as a Baptist for anyone who cares um, is that, um, you know, I'm taking, I'm realizing that I have a real responsi- responsibility for those under my care. Um, as, a, as a Baptist, I've got a conviction that I apply the sign only after a credible profession. But, you know, I'm taking this, this chapter as in, listen, I've, I've really got to consecrate my kids to the Lord by way of, uh, of allowing them to know what is true of them objectively in terms of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, if they believe. And um, I think at that level, functionally, which I know is, is often the case anyway between the Baptist and Presbyterian debate, debate it's going to look very similar at that functional level. But um, hopefully that's some food for thought for people. Um, you know, my, my hope would be that I think I know that when I started reading Klein, I sort of steered away from this book a little bit because I was like, oh, this is the big Presbyterian spin. You know, I don't, I don't really want to go there. But I couldn't have been more wrong. I think, um, and look, if it wins you over to being a paid baptist amen, go for your life. You know, my goodness, uh, do it. Uh, you have, I mean, I think, 
I would, I would hang out with Presbyterians that believe this a million times over than Baptist Union guys, uh, just to make that super clear. Um, but, but the bottom line is, don't stay away from this book as a Baptist. And then, of course, as a Presbyterian, this book will turn your head upside down. You know, it's actually even more of a thing. Ironically, here's, here's the other thing. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I feel like it's a bigger punch to a Presbyterian way of processing this than it is for a Baptist in many ways. So that's maybe why I feel the kinship, you know, with, with this. Mm. Yeah. I think you might be right about that. Totally. I'm always right about everything, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're trying to take over the world. That. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got Kendall. He's saying, uh, this is what we've been waiting for. What have we been waiting for, Kendall? We've been waiting for you to get on this channel. That's what we've been waiting for. <laughs> and, uh, and Ari says, so basically Chris is a Baptist. Well, I think that's oh. great. <laughs> so that's very, very clear. Chris. Now, the, all that needs to happen now is you need to come to New Zealand and start uh, pastoring a Baptist church. Right, well, I can't wait to come back to New Zealand. That's for sure. Okay, well, we'll start with that. Now, let me do my super duper um, awesome run out. Uh, we're going to play out here. Um, let's see if this works. 